do you believe that the goodness of God is running after you? You know, sometimes we treat God like this. It's like we we get up in the morning, we're getting ready, and we go outside, and we're having to walk to work. Maybe we're on the streets of a city, and we notice like someone's following us. You know, so we got pick. Oh no, so we kind of pick up our pace, and then and we go around a corner, and they go around the corner, and then you know we we go around this corner, and they go around this corner, and then so we speed up. We're trying to like act like we're not, and then they speed up. Next thing you know, we're like fully running, 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 running. We're trying to get away from this person. They're sprinting, and they're sprinting after us, and we're like, what is this creep doing? What are they doing? Next thing you know, we're hitting over a hot dog stand. We're knocking old ladies out of the way and we trip and we fall down. And we look to see the, to, to see the person who's chasing us with ill intent and a person breathing with breath, just out of breath, chasing us, leans down and says, you dropped your wallet. And we have the wrong perspective of what God is trying to do in our life. And just like that, we run and run and run and God's chasing us and we think and we come to conclusions that somehow he has ill intent towards us. Bible says that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The pursuit of God on your life, whether it be through a hardship, a trial, the loss of things, whatever it may be, is not God trying to press you down and hold you down and make you miserable. It's him trying to get your attention to say, there is nothing better than me. You need me and I love you and I will pursue you as long and as hard as I have to with my goodness. And we hope you see that today. Before we have the people come up on stage and we get into the story, let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, you are good. Even when we don't know that or believe it, you are good. And I pray that you would help us to see your goodness on our life. To see how kind and gracious you're being. As the scripture says, that your kindness and your forbearance is meant to lead us to repentance. Help us to not presume upon your grace but help us to see that you are giving everyone, everyone on planet earth, time to turn to you. And in that time and in that waiting, that means we must endure the hardship of the world in order for us to have opportunities to be saved. So I pray that you would save those who are not. I pray that you would use the testimony of Todd and Wendy and the the things that happen in their life that you have meant for their glory and for your glory ultimately and for their good and for the gospel to shine forth for all to see pray it all in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. So we've been in the book of James. We've been studying this book. It's a small book in the New Testament. And that, that book of James starts out by saying, count it all joy, my beloved brothers, when you meet various types of trials. And that little statement right there caused us a few weeks ago to invite Wendy on the stage and to share a little bit of the story of her loss in the past and how God brought her through that. And as a result of that kind of God at work story, it was only like a fraction of what God has actually done in her life and in, in her husband's life and Pastor Todd's life. And so many of you are like, man, we need part two. We need the full story. And we were like, yep, we do. We need part two. We need to get the full story and we need to truly see God at work. And we need to see the, the hindsight purpose of why we can count all trials in our life for joy. Count it. Doesn't mean force yourself to be fake happy. It just means see it and know from the perspective in your mind that even the grief that you're going through, God is doing something and there is a reason for joy in it. And we hope, hope, hope you see that this morning. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to ask Todd and Wendy to go ahead and come up on stage and we're going to get it set up and comfortable. Oh, look at these. Look at this. Look, you just turn around and chairs are there. How about that? Todd and Wendy, come on up and we're going to get started. I'll have you guys sit right here. 
Yes, let's give him a round of applause. Todd and Wendy, if you don't know, Todd is one of the pastors here. And just go ahead and you guys introduce yourself, say a little bit about, you know, your life and your journey here. Don't get into the full story. Just, just here at Summit and who you are. Introduction. Go ahead. We're Todd and Wendy, and we have been a part of this church for 17? Yeah. 17 years. And um, absolutely love it here. This is our family. And um, yeah, we love you, and we're excited to, well, and very nervous as well, but <laughs> to share um, the story that God has written in our life, and my prayer is that he is going to tell the story today for you, so. Do you need me to talk? Yes, I need you to talk, yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what, you guys, I'm up here every Sunday, not every Sunday, but very often, and so you know me from the pulpit, uh, and other interactions in the life of the church. But, you know, the Lord called me into ministry 15 years ago, and, and uh, there's no place I'd rather be. Um, well, in this moment, there are many other places I would rather be than sitting on this couch yeah. in front of you. But, but this is where the Lord has brought me. And, uh, you know, I, I spend maybe 20, 25 hours a week preparing sermons to deliver. Well, I'm very humbled that the Lord would choose over the last 20 years to write a message pretty incredible message. And, uh, and so like two weeks ago, Corey had this high horsepowered song of the gospel message of Jesus Christ just before I get up to preach. And I can't, you remember that I couldn't hold it together. And I'm like, Lord, that was simple in comparison to what's taking place today, because there are things that I haven't revisited for years and years and years. And so while I might have been a little weepy then, I pray to God, so please, please pray that I don't just absolutely lose it on stage and have to walk off. So That's okay. Thanks. I think, I think we could all join together. You could look at the people's faces here and everyone watching. We love you guys, and we are excited and just, want, just excited to hear what God has done in your life. So there's no reason to be nervous or worry about anything. We're all, we're all just excited to hear what God has done for you guys. And so we're just going to walk through it. So let's, let's do this. We've got a big story. And when I was talking to them, one of the things that they said was that the, kind of the details get lost when you try to tell the full story together. People are like, okay, who, where, what, and, and, and when. And so we're trying to do our best to organize this so it'll be easy to follow along. So the first thing we're going to do is I'm going to put a map on the screen. And there's going to be dots there. And I want you, you guys to kind of introduce kind of the main characters to this story and kind of show us the significance of each one of these locations, okay? So we're going to see it right here, and you see this kind of incorporate the uh, northeast of America, U.S., along with uh, a little tip of Canada. So let's start here in Grand Rapids. What's the significance of Grand Rapids? Well, so a lot of people think that I'm Canadian, but I actually was born in Indiana, and um, my family lived in Grand Rapids mostly, but my dad was um, a pastor. And so I'm a PK, preacher's kid, and we've moved around Michigan for the most part, but Grand Rapids from sixth grade till I graduated high school. Um, Yeah. So it wasn't until I moved to Huntington, Indiana for um, college that I met this guy and my late husband. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Huntington's kind of the like, that's the central hub for us all meeting okay. in, uh, like, 1987. Dave and, and Wendy were there. 
Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm sorry. Dave and Wendy were there. I came a couple of years later um, after graduating high school. And so that's where we actually all met. Dave was my RA in college and uh, developed quite a relationship with him there. So, and I knew, only knew Wendy as Dave's girlfriend. So Huntington, what was the college? Huntington College, which is now Huntington University. Huntington University, okay. So that's the central hub. Huntington is where the convergence of people meet. Uh, Grand Rapids is where you're from. Chambersburg is where who who is from? Yeah, that's where I'm from. I'm from Chambersburg, and uh, my late wife, Andrea, was from uh, York, Pennsylvania. And um, we met as she came to church in my church one Sunday, which is, you know, the de- there, we got to sort through all the details because this is like a five-hour story. So yeah. anyhow, we met um, in church, but she was from York. I was from Chambersburg. Okay. And Dave is from Kitchener, Ontario. So you guys have heard two other names. Some of you, a lot of you know the story, but we're going to talk as if, as if for someone who doesn't know the story. So we have Todd and Wendy who's with us today, but you've heard them just mention Dave and you've heard them mention Andrea. So there's two other people in this story that aren't here with us today, and we're going to find out why that is here in just a second. Andrea's from York, Pennsylvania, and Dave is from Kitchener, and you guys all met at Huntington, correct? Yes. Okay. Not Andrea. Yeah, Andrea oh. did not go to Huntington. She did not go to I met her okay. a couple of years after graduating college, moved home to Chambersburg. But you, Wendy, and Dave are going to meet in Huntington. Yes. Okay. All right, so let's, let's put up a timeline here, and this is what we're going to work through. We're going to start with 1985. <laughs> And we're going to work up to the year 2000, right? You guys ready? Here we go. 1985, what happens, Wendy? Is when I went to Huntington, graduated high school, went to Huntington College. And Dave met him actually at freshman orientation, so first day that I got there. Um, And he was a pastor's kid as well. So because Huntington is our church-affiliated college, so my parents went there, graduated from there. Dave's um, parents went there. Um, both of our dads graduated seminary from Huntington, Indiana. So we just went to college there too and met and um, had a sociology class together and realized that we um, were very much alike, thought a lot alike, had a lot of plans for the future, very similar. Um, and we became fast friends. He was probably my very best friend, our first year of college while I was dating somebody else that I shouldn't have been dating. Mm. (laughs) Um, And then when, actually when I broke up with the other guy, um, Dave was my best friend there and was just great through all of it. And then we just became really very close. We did devotions together. We did classes together. We were very close. We dated for two years. Um, and we knew that we were God's gift to each other for marriage. So we got married in... Well, let me, eight, oh, let me show a more. picture of Dave real quick. Oh. There he is. Yeah, and you guys are going to get to see uh, Wendy's son, Josh, here in a bit, who we're going to introduce. <laughs> and you're going to think that that's Josh when you see that. Um, but this is a picture of Dave. And then you guys, uh, before you get married, though, something happens, right? Before, do I have that right? Does Todd meet Dave? Todd knew you guys before oh, you yeah. got married. Right? Yeah, he was, I was a freshman. They were juniors, and Dave was my RA. And uh, so we, we did. We became quick friends. And, uh, but I only over, ever knew her as Dave's girlfriend, then fiance, then wife. Hmm. So are you thinking about something else? We were at a no, concert. That's perfect. We were at a concert, right? And 
you came in and Dave said, hey, I want you to meet my girlfriend. And that was the oh, first yeah, time we yeah. met. Yeah. 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 I don't remember it, but I remember you saying. Yeah. <laughs> we actually have a picture of you and, you and Dave. Look at oh, that. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's me in the white. And that's... That, <laughs> I think we know that, who Todd is. That's a picture of my two husbands. That's, Todd was in Dave and I's wedding. How cool is that? So, th- so this is a picture from the wedding, okay? Yes. Yeah. And Todd is there. So let's, let's talk about the wedding. So you guys get married. And we have this picture here. So 80s. <laughs> 80s, but a great, great picture. And then not, not long after, you guys start to have some kids, right? We did. Yeah. We have Mitch and Reed right away. Well, they're two years apart. And then Josh is four years later. He was kind of like, if we're going to try for a girl now or never. <laughs> and we had another wonderful boy, which is awesome. So. And in between Reed and Josh being born is the timeline. If you see, I have Todd at the bottom, Wendy at top. In between Reed and Josh being born is when uh, Todd marries Andrea. So Todd, tell us a little bit about Andrea, kind of how you guys met. And Yeah, she was, uh, she was, we had a mutual friend. Her name is Amy Stauffer, now Amy Culler. Uh, but anyhow, she was, I grew up with her in the same youth group. We, we did so much together because our, our church back there was our church family as well. Uh, well, Amy was getting married, and so Andrea was over for a dress fitting. You know, here's the sovereignty of God at work. The only Sunday of the year that Andrea was in Chambersburg was the only Sunday of the year that Mount Pleasant, the church that Amy had started going to, had closed because of ice. So Andrea came with Amy to our church, and that's how I met her um, in church, which is a great place to meet your future bride. And I have some pictures here. Yeah, there she is. And then I have a wedding picture as well. And there we are. There we go. Yeah. I tell you what, Todd, you clean up pretty nice. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care what anybody says about you. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> Good. The fear of man is a snare. Um, there's a lot to fear there, Todd. Um, you know I'm joking. This next picture, is this a picture of Dave... In the wedding? Yeah, Dave, uh, so I was in his wedding, and of course, he was in mine. And so that's us at my wedding. And Wendy, there are your two husbands again. Another picture of yeah. my two husbands. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good picture, Todd. That's a really good picture. All right, so you and Andrea get married, yeah. and then uh, about a year later, Josh is born, right? And so the, the, the life that you guys are now living, married, it's happening where? Take us back to the map. Where are you guys at? Where are you living at during the time when you're married? Uh, after Andrea and I got married, we stayed. She moved from York, Pennsylvania to Chambersburg, and that's where we had our five-and-a-half-year life together. And, uh, and, of course, Dave and Wendy had stayed in Kitchener-Waterloo in Ontario, and that's where they spent the 10 years of their lives together raising their three boys. And there were, there were times where Andrea and I would go up and visit Dave and Wendy. There were times where they would come down and, and, uh, and visit us. So there was relationship. But keep in mind, this is, this is before the advent of the Internet, and so there was no, like, texting and staying. And it, was a, like, it was the occasional call. The occasional visit was the connection. And uh, so, 
I do have to say, I remember many times um, Todd and Dave talking on the phone, and Dave, like, for a long time, you would talk for an hour sometimes. And, and I actually have a picture of Dave sitting on the couch um, on the phone, and Josh is sitting under him with his feet up on the coffee table, just like his dad. Um, and he's on the phone, and he's talking to Todd. Wow. And he would hang up the phone, and he would say, I just love that guy. I remember him saying that. It's okay to tear up, Todd. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. yeah. So I have a picture of you and your family. So here we go. We have Josh, the youngest. Reed is right there in the middle. And Mitch in the, is the oldest there. Is Mitch wearing some type? What are the, oh, that's just, that's just good 90s clothing, isn't it? For a second, I thought it was like Boy Scouts type you know, thing. But This was at my niece's wedding. There we go. In December. Um, which is ju- the December just before he died. Okay. So just months before he died. So we've kind of set the stage. We kind of know where things are happening. Hope you guys are tracking along with us. Uh, life's moving along. Uh, marriage is moving along. We're about five years, five and a half years in. You guys are about 10 years into your marriage. And the children are born. And then in 1998, maybe this is where we slow down a little bit and let's tell about what happened. Okay. So, um, like I said before, the other time I shared is that, um, Dave was on a lot of special divisions in the police force. And one of them was, um, the ERU, the emergency response. Yeah. This one here, um, which is kind of like our American SWAT team, um, for lack of a better way to explain. So those are his tightest, like he worked very closely with those guys. Um, and the brotherhood of the police is incredible. I really didn't have a full understanding of it until after he passed away and they took care of everything, everything, driving me to the grocery store, driving my parents back home from, um, Canada back to Michigan because my dad was going to preach that Sunday and then make sure that they got back. Like they stayed the weekend with them and drove them back. They did that with my brother who, um, was a football coach. They, a couple police officers drove home with him, stayed the weekend while he coached his football game, and then came back. Um, so just they just didn't want us to be alone and unsafe. So anyway, um, the boys had, um, they were doing little league football. So they had a practice, and Dave had his pager, and his pager went off at the practice. And so he had to go call. It was before cell phones and all of that. So he went to a store and he said, if I, call, if I don't come back, then I got called out. Otherwise, I'll call you later and let you know. So um, I took the boys home, put them to bed. I remember praying with them before he had, Dave called and said that a 12-year-old boy had gone swimming in a low-head dam in, Cam- in Cambridge, which Kitchener-Waterloo is this huge um, Lake Grand Rapids maybe bigger because it's a tri-city. So it's Kitchener, Waterloo, and Cambridge kind of all together, big city. And that's where he was a police officer. So, but he was also not just the SWAT team, but a, on the dive team. So they would go in mostly uh, searching for abandoned cars that had been in a robbery or something um, and then dumped them in a pond or something like that. But this was a 12-year-old boy had gone swimming and not resurfaced. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was called in 
Niagara dive team was called in. The police, the fire department had been in and searching. And so then they called in these guys. So, um, he was the first one to go in and he was swimming along the bottom of the dam, the up the side, the river's flowing over. And this was August, um, 12, it took three days. They ended up needing to reroute the river because they knew with cameras and boats and the way that Dave had all these um, lines tied to him and he went in and was signaling back and they believe that he signaled that he found the boy and then the rope went taunt. Um, So that they assumed then and they could not pull him out. They had a hundred people were along the river watching the police, the search and rescue and a hundred people got on the line to pull, trying to pull him out because of the force of the water and it actually snapped. Mm. So um, then they took boats, they tried many other ways, ended up having to reroute the river and bring in sandbags and a truck in the lower part of the dam. So when the dam comes down, I think there's a picture of that um, from the newspaper there. So on the dam and they, they drove trucks in then and put... Um, they found a big tree trunk that was stuck in one of the sluice, the holes in the bottom of the dam where the river would go through. And the boy had been swimming above and then went down and the water caught him in the sluice with, against the tree trunk and couldn't get through. And then Dave going around the top of the dam searching, they believe he found the boy, but the water forced him in as well. And the coroner told me later would have been like two semi-trucks, the force of the water forcing him in and not being able to, to breathe again. And, um, mm. But that it would have been very quick. There was little fluid in his lungs, and okay. he died very quickly. So I'm back home putting the boys to bed and praying for the boy. I remember praying um, with the boys for this boy and his family and for daddy's safety And then I ended up falling asleep. And then at midnight, um, the doorbell rang. And I went down. And there were two plainclothes officers in the front. And plainclothes means they're high up in the division. And I didn't know them. But right behind them was an officer in uniform. And I knew him. He was a friend of ours. And um, I said the first things. I said do we need to go to the hospital? I thought this is one of those phone calls that all um, spouses of police officers dread. And, um, and they said, can we come in and sit down? And that started this whole journey. Um, people started flooding our house. And I remember thinking, I have three little boys who are asleep upstairs. And when they wake, I have to tell them this news. I just wanted them to sleep for at least three days and everyone just be quiet. And yeah. So um, I have a picture here of just the, that kind of shows the community wide involvement of this story because this wasn't just something that happened and it was secluded to your home. This, this was something the whole surrounding communities were aware of. And knew of it, and it was even in the news, and people knew the name TV. Wendy hosted her, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. Nicholson. Or Nicholson, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, there were 8,000 people um, at his funeral. Police officers from all over Canada and the U.S. came and stood at attention for four miles while we drove from the church to the graveside. So you have this tragedy happen. There's a couple years before Todd has something that happened. So, Todd, tell me, tell me what was going through your mind when you heard the news of Dave's, all right? So this is one of your friends. What's going on back in Pennsylvania with the news? When you consider the passage we've been in, considering it pure joy, whenever you face trials of various kinds, when I think through, at that point, the first 29, 30 years of my life, I would have to say this is where this is where it really began. Like this this season of significant and deep trial, um, because Dave was he was one of my best friends, and and uh, so we were. My brother lived in Raleigh, and uh, he was roommates with Dave in college, so a pretty tight group. Um, but anyhow, he was he drove up. We were going to go on up to Canada to Dave's funeral, and of course. Well, not of course, you don't know this, but um, quarter after four, we're leaving at five o'clock. When I get out of work, we get a call that my youngest brother's six-year-old was killed in a car accident. So, so here we go. Now, of course, not knowing what lies down the road for me, but it was like this began a pretty significant season of um, hardship for, for both of us. So you go to the funeral. No, didn't go to the funeral. We stayed home for my of your, yeah, my brother. Okay. Yeah, we didn't get to do that. So that's where the the piece is there. Yes, this is you and Andrea have been married about how long at this point? Uh, at that point, it was three and a half years, three years, pushing four. Okay. Yes. So jumping back to Wendy, so there's about a year and a half, two year period of where you're you're by yourself. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, so single mom with three grieving boys. Um, and I can get pretty lost in how dark that was and hard. But on this side of it, I think there, I saw God's provision so much through it. Um, I was, I had a lot of fear. Grief is the craziest thing um, with fear and anger and um despair, all of these huge emotions that are just wrapped up into trying to keep your head above water and, um, and in, include that with our entire family, grieving Dave and our, our closest friends. Our church family was amazing. They, were, they became Dave for me. They became my family um, and the brotherhood and everyone taking care of things that I remember, I think I've said this in the other time, but I remember some really close friends of mine, they were both um, in the psychology field, and I remember telling them, pulling them aside and saying, I need to know that you're watching me, because I know I won't survive this, uh, Dave dying. I, I, can't, I can't live with that man, without that man in my life, and I don't know why I'm not a crumbled mess in the corner. It's because people are praying for us and because my boys already lost their father. I refuse for them to lose their mother as well. And so just clinging to the Lord and I ask them, I need to know, you will need to admit me to a psych ward at some point. I just need to know that you're watching 
and that you'll make sure I get there and you take care of my boys. You know, there's a verse, I'm going to misquote it, but it talks about the waters rising. They'll not over, God will not let them overtake you. But those moments of life where we, we feel the waters rising, you can just see it on the precipice. And for you to say, yeah, there's going to be a time, it's going to overtake me, look out for me. Um, did that what? ever happen? It did not ever did happen. Not? Okay. No. Yeah. God Andy is good. has described grief. I've never heard it described this way. You know, you have your anger, and it's anger. You have your, um, you have your pain, and it's pain. But grief, like, like there are these individual emotions we all experience, a whole bunch of them. Grief is all of them together. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, I mean, of course, we know that's what complicates the grieving processes because it's so much of every emotion mixed together. So a couple years goes by, it hits about the year 2000, and now Todd, tell us about Andrea's accident. Yeah, last two, when Wendy shared a couple of weeks ago, Wendy's mom, Sandy Burke, she asked, where's Todd in all of this as you're telling this story? Like, what is he thinking about all of this? And I, I want you to know it, there's no weirdness at all when I hear her tell these stories of Dave. Um, and and her their ten years together none none at all it's never easy for me to hear what she went through and I, there are so many things that she shares that I just can't even hardly take um, including she didn't share it but but in her grief post Dave's well clearly after Dave's death Mitch the oldest one sitting on her bedside as a nine year old consoling her until she falls asleep. Like they're, they're the kind of things that just, you don't get over it. It's so impactful to hear that, that a, a boy at that age would be able to, to step through his own fears and, and, and help his mom. So when she wakes up screaming yes. in the night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Caden shared when, when he heard that Mitch did that, this would be everyone else's response. I'd have stayed in my room, put my pillow over my head, and waited till it passed. How do you, I mean, as a kid, how do you do that? It's just outrageous. So, yeah. The boys dealt with grief so differently. Like, everybody handles things different, and, and they're nine, seven, and three. So, a lot of different things going on in them, too, and... And what's interesting, I think, is that to consider that losing their dad at that age, they grieve him differently now, even as they grow. So they grieve him then again as 17-year-olds, and then again as, you know, on their wedding day, when they're getting married in 2023, and then again when their children are born. And, like, all of this, that it just never goes away. You don't get over it. Um, you learn to and sew it into who you are and it becomes part of who you are. So, mm-hmm. all right, Todd. So take us to the year 2000, June 27th, June 27th of 2000. Um, I learned in a five-week period, I learned lessons that I can't even begin to, to sort through and organize. So as it comes out, I pray to God that he, um, he speaks to you through it. But um, it was, I, had, I had started back to college to get my uh, degree in education, a, a second degree in education. And, um, and 
I praise God for his sovereign plan. There was Andrea had passages, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven on the fridge, Psalm 139, and then um, just really absolutely powerful and meaningful passages of scripture that we needed through her time while she was in, the, in a coma for five weeks. But that morning of June 27th, uh, a couple of days before, my aunt and my uncle were out to eat with Andrea and I, and we were talking through how men, you know this, how we're very general with our compliments that we pay our wives. And, uh, hey, uh, you look nice today. That really doesn't cut it, does it, ladies? And uh, so, so there, like, in my head was, I need to be intentional. Well, Wendy, excuse me, we do this a lot. <laughs> Andrea, she had on this jumper that had two buttons on each side, shoulder straps, and one of them was undone. And so just before she's walking out the door to go into Gettysburg to teach migrant children um, English, that's what she did through the summers, uh, I noticed one was unbuttoned. So she was still safe because one was buttoned. And I pointed it out to her. And uh, she said, so after I pointed out to her, this was one of her famous things, she typically would tell you if, you, if you point something out about an individual that needs to be corrected, you have to say three nice things to, her, to, to the person. Well, she gave me, she cut me some slack and she said, say one thing, say one thing nice about me. I love how God works. The last words that my wife heard me say were this, you have the most beautiful face. I, I don't deserve for her to enter into eternity with those being last words. When you, you know, when you think through the hardships of marriage, and we had a few months early on, um, and, and things smoothed out, and we had an absolutely spectacular marriage, but to, for those to be the last words your wife hears coming out of, your, out of your mouth, I just praise God for that absolute moment. So she's out the door. She's on her way. I leave, and I go to school north into Shippensburg, Pennsylvania, and I hear on the radio that there was an accident at the corner of 997 and Route 30, which is kind of at the bottom of a mountain that separates Chambersburg and Gettysburg. So anyhow, she, um, well, yeah, but I didn't, of course, you don't think anything of it. You just don't think this is going to happen. So I get to school and I'm uh, sitting in a classroom and a security guard shows up at the door of the classroom. And of course, if I'm not a rule breaker at all. So when he asked for me, I'm like, I don't even park illegally. So how is this happening that he's here to see me? Well, of course, you know, as soon as you walk out into the, um, into the hallway and he says, I'd like you to sit down, you know something's up. So, of course, he said, I'd like you to have a seat. He says, your wife has been in a car accident and she has been flown to York Hospital's trauma unit and uh, you need to get there. And I said, well, is she, is she okay? He said, that's all I can tell you. And so... I got the number, I called the trauma unit, and they informed me of everything that had happened. Um, They were gracious enough to tell me that she was alive and in surgery, and so that began the process of me finding my way to York's trauma unit. And uh, Andrea's mom had beat us there. My mom had beat us there. So was my dad and I as we walk in the room, and there she laid, hooked up to everything imaginable. With a, with a wall full of doctors, every doctor for every system of the body, 
And uh, there were two in particular that I both loved and hated. The neurosurgeon and the trauma doctor, which he oversaw everything. And they just, they unfolded for me the entire forest of trees of issues that we were facing. And of course, I was presented with what would Andrea want right now as it relates to life support extensive measures. And I wasn't, I was numb, wasn't ready to make that decision. I didn't know what she wanted. I had an idea what she wanted, but it was let's wait and see what happens as she works through this coma and see what's left. Um, A lot of damage. By the way, she was hit on her driver's side door by a tractor trailer that was, the speed limit was 45, so he's probably going 50 or so. And her little Nissan Sentra hit her right on the driver's side door um, and did a whole lot of damage on that side, but the main damage was her brain. And so it began a process of us sitting and waiting, sitting and waiting from 9 in the morning until 11 at night for five weeks. I just sat. These two doctors shared with me. The neurosurgeon, he came in dressed like he was ready for the beach with a straw hat on and flower shirt and white pants. I liked him. Because he was, he was Mr. Positive. And then Dr. Dawson, I did not like him. He was the trauma doctor because he was, he was the black and white guy. This is what you're dealing with. This is, these are your options. I didn't like that because there was no hope in what he said. So, of course, if five weeks rolls by, actually not five, it's just so laced with so many things. One thing in particular I want, I want to point out, um, and as you consider grief and how to come alongside people that are grieving, this individual that was from Chambersburg came and sat down with me on a, on a, sat down with me, this is like a week or 10 days in, and uh, shares with me his story with his wife sitting right next to him and like 20 or 30 um, people, friends and family from King Street where we went to church, Andrea and I went to church, and uh, he's telling me his story. Yep, we were in the same trauma unit, and uh, she was in a coma for five weeks, and this woman that she's come out of a coma, she's not the same woman I married. And he's telling me this. He says, she's not the woman I married. Her kids don't even know her. This has essentially altered who she is. She's, and he just goes on and on and on. And I'm like, how in the world is this helpful for me in this moment? I think you need to stop now. Well, praise God, one of our friends said, man, your wife is sitting right next to you. How do you do this? And he said, I'm, he said, her short-term memory's gone. She won't remember a single word we said tomorrow. At Andrea's funeral, line three hours long to come in and see me and my family and Andrea's family. She stood and waited and waited and waited and waited to deliver me a message. She didn't say a word when she sat in that waiting room of the hospital first word I ever heard her speak was, you made the right decision. And I'm like, she's hearing something. She's picking something up from her husband. And I, I think about the words we listen to, and I think about how we help people through grief. It would have been really awesome if he would have come over and just said, hey, this is terrible. I'm here if you have any questions, period. That evening, 
We go out to eat. The same Amy that introduced me to Andrea, there's a bunch of us that gone out to eat after that incident. And she said to me, like I was weeping at dinner, and she said, she said, Todd, what do you want? And I said, I want her to be healed. What husband wouldn't? And she turned to me and she said, I want you to know something. So here comes Amy with her black and white, very direct, God-centered way. She said, she's going to be healed. You may not like how she's healed because he may choose to bring her into eternity and heal her there, or he's going to heal her, heal her now. Be sure that she will be healed. Those words were gold. Three weeks of watching her brain swell and then not swell and injure itself and then injure and swell and on and on the, 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 it went. When that all had run its course, um, I'm sitting with my mom. I'm just thinking this is what we do. We just sit here from nine in the morning till 11 at night and we let the thing run its course. Like I wasn't thinking about what came next. I was worrying about today because tomorrow has enough worries of its own, right? And then my mom says, Todd, how long are you going to let this go on? Because I was next of kin. And of course, I was the one that had to make the, be the one to declare the message. And I was like, well, I suppose it's time to have another talk with the doctors. So the doctors came together. Dr. Dawson, the guy I couldn't stand, I finally had a moment with him where I said, look, I have to apologize for my attitude for the, course, for what I, the way I've reacted to you. He said, not necessary. I said, I need you to tell me, what would you do if it was your wife? He said, I'm going to give you two answers. He said, if I was a husband, I would wait three. As a husband, I would wait three more months. He said, but as a physician, I'm telling you, there's no reason to wait another moment longer. And I said, thank you. That's, that's the information I needed. We gathered with Andrea's mom, myself, my parents, pastor, and they presented it to us. And they said, we need to know what Andrea would want, not what youth." Not what you want, but what she would want. And that's when Ellen, um, Andrea's mom, spoke up and said, just before the accident, like three or four days before, Wendy, Andrea had spent a week with her mom, and they were talking through extensive measures to be taken if something like this happened. And Ellen said, I would not want to be in that. Uh, do, do not take extensive measures. And Andrea said to her, I would not want that either. Now, Ellen, as you know, a mom would struggle with letting her daughter go. And she could have held that forever, but she chose to deliver it to the doctors. And they looked at me and I said, that's what I believe she would want. So we removed life support after four weeks and she lived for another week without any form of life support. And she died a quarter after four on August 2nd. No doubt a a very heavy story from both of you for us all to sit here and hear. Um, I'm sure many things are going through our mind. The story is not ending there, though. So there are 10 billion different things that you guys can say and questions that people ask based off what you just told us. If we all took time to say, hey, you got two hours with Todd and Wendy, you'd have no problem filling the time. So here's, so here's what I want us to do now. We've heard the story. We've led up to this point. What I want you guys to share now is this is ultimately a story of God at work. I, I've kind of given you the homework to say you have this period of time to say whatever you want to say to people that are listening. 
given the, the trauma and the, the story that you just told us. So now I'm just going to open it up, give it over to you guys as casuals, back and forth as you want it to be. What are things that you would like to share now, considering God's care and his, his, his providence over your life, looking back on that? Anything you want to say, what would you say? Over, like, the grief and God carrying us through that. Anything you want to say looking back on the story, here's what I would want you to tell me about my going through all of that and God working in my life and anything surrounding it, whatever you'd want to say. I would start with this. So when I think about what the doctors had to say to me, there were were passages of Scripture that absolutely meant everything. And we're going to go probably long today, so I hope you're okay with that. Um, Okay, I'll hurry. Colossians 2, verses 6 to 8, I believe it says, Therefore, since you have accepted Christ Jesus as Lord. Like, that's the beginning of being able to make it through something awful like this, is recognizing the lordship of Jesus Christ. So therefore, since you have accepted Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. This was presented to me. Then, do not be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. And that meant so much to me because the doctors, as gifted as they are in the fields that they are in, their entire practice is, bent, is determined and based on the, really ultimately the basic principles of this world. They're not ultimately the answer for how to make it through a five-week period where you're watching your wife lay in a coma. This is, this is Christ Jesus as Lord being the answer for how to make it through something like this. He sees past, present, and future and knows exactly how to deal with you and your spouse and whoever else as you sit and you watch and wait and listen to people provide you with insight and information about how to respond to it. It's, it's entirely dependent on the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. <clears throat> I think, too, for me, I was telling Todd, we were talking about grief. And you know there's all kinds of grief. There's not just the grief of losing a spouse or a parent. There's losing a child. There's um, when you hear diagnosis of cancer, when you have a job change, when you have all kinds of things that we grieve when they're, you're told your two-year-old has type 1 diabetes. Those things that just change your life, you need to grieve. And so there's all kinds of different things, but I'm, we've talked about this, that grief is just one of the strangest <clears throat> of the emotions that God really gifts us with, our emotions. And grief being the strangest because it encompasses like all of them. Um, he gave me this after when I shared my testimony last time and I was up for three nights thinking, why did I say that? I should have said this. And finally I'm like, Tuesday morning, forget this. I'm going to get up at four in the morning and write out what is going through my head. And, um, this, that grief is just such a strange emotion, a thing to that we deal with, um, because it has disbelief. First of all, which where you question and doubt that God is good and that he will be with you through it. It has anger, which says, ultimately, 
I don't deserve this, and I deserve better. Has fear that tells you that things are so much worse than they really are, and that God is not trustworthy. And despair that says, I'm not going to survive this pain, and does it really matter if I do? And those are all the lies that are mixed up in grief, because we have to remember that in the disbelief and doubt that God, that these are lies and that God is very good in it. And that it's a surrendering yourself. So you surrender in the anger and let him be your presence. Let him love you and be your ever-present prince of peace. In the overwhelming fear, we need to let him be the voice of truth and our inner strength. And in the despair, we need to let him be the reason for our living. Mm. And that he makes all of it worth it. Amen. Someone were to join us on stage right now, and they were to say, Todd and Wendy, I'm going through something, and I don't think I can bear it. Help. Right? Just thrown on your lap. Mm-hmm. What, what would you say in the moment? Let's pray. Let, oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I'm going to save mine for the end. Okay. Because I don't want to say it twice. You don't want to say it twice. But it's what keeps oh, coming so you have something head. you already want to say. Yeah, I, I love do. it. He already said something he wants to share. That's what I love about it. Okay. You want me to say it? No, you, you, know, you save it for the end. If you want to save it for the end, you save it for the All end. All right. Well, let's do this. Uh, anything else? I just want to make sure you guys have opportunities to share things on your heart. Is there anything else that you want to share concerning that time in the past before we move on to part two of the story. Let's move. Okay. So the accident happens with Andrea. We're going to continue the story. Wendy, tell us what's going through your mind when you hear about Todd's, um, when you hear about Andrea's accident. What's going on? Where are you at? Bring us into the story. Okay. So one quick little excerpt there after, because Dave died and Todd could not come. He and Andrea couldn't come to the funeral because Chanel had been killed. Um, So then Todd and Andrea came the next summer and stayed with us. Do you remember that? And I showed them the video of the funeral and the news clippings and the, somebody had taped a bunch of um, the news that was how that, so we were able to kind of grieve Mm -hmm. together then. Um, and then with Andrea's funeral, I remember when um, your brother, older brother, who was, again, he was one of Dave's roommates in college, he called me and another really close friend um, in Pennsylvania or in Canada told me this. They both said the same thing to me at different times. They said, you need to call Todd. And I said, no. I said, I represent what Andrea's happens. still in a coma at this point. Yes, so. Andrea was in a coma. And we were all praying that she would be healed. And them telling me I should call him, and I said, no, I represent what happens when Andrea doesn't pull through. We're all believing and trusting that she's going to be healed and pull through. So they were both like, no, I don't think think he's going to think that. So I ended up calling and just leaving a message, thank God. Um, Didn't talk to him at the time. And just said, I just want you to know that we have the prayer chain. You know, it's back in the prayer chain days. We had 
in Pennsylvania or in Canada and in Michigan with my dad being on staff. And um, so we just had prayer chain going. I said, you don't need to call me back, but I just want you to know we're praying and we love you guys. And then he did call me and we did start talking a lot about just grief and dealing with things. And then I did go to the funeral, came down. Yeah, there was one call. There was before just one Andrea before. Died. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, and then I went to the funeral, and mm-hmm. that's a weird story, but mm. don't have time for. And then um, I remember saying goodbye to you after the funeral, and I said, I'll keep calling just to see how you're doing. And then um, my girlfriend and I got in the car, and we were driving 12 hours home through the mountains back to Ontario. And I remember, like, all of a sudden, I'm not calling him. Like, I never thought of myself as single for three years. I still wore my wedding ring. I just never, I never dated. I just wasn't ever going to do that. (laughs) And um, I just thought, he's not married anymore to my friend. And I'm not going to call him. He's going to think I'm after him. I'm not calling him. Never mind. (laughs) We're in our late 20s, early 30s at this point. So just to give a little perspective. 33, mother of three. Is when we got married. Yeah. So, but then we did start, then you called and we did talk a lot and often just about grief and Mm -hmm. living through that and supporting each other through grief. And then... My brother, who lived in Raleigh, we met for dinner one night, and this is a couple of months after Andrea had died, and he goes, Dave's roommate, that brother, he says, hey, you're going to get married again. I said, we had a great marriage, and I said, it's early to think about that, but I would suppose, I'm 30 year, 31 years old, I suppose I will, and he says, it, he says, are you thinking about anybody? And I said, no. I said, I have an if you're asking me for an idea, I suppose I have an idea of what she might be like, but it was not mother of three, charismatic, that lives in Canada. That was far from my... Yeah, throw that in there. Yeah. And so he's like, he's like, play the guessing game. And I was like, I'm not doing that. And I said, I don't know what I said. I said, did she go to King Street where I went to church? No. I said, well, did she go to church? And he said, yes. And then it was dawned on me. I said, no way. I didn't even name her, and he knew who I was thinking. I said, no way am I going to marry her. I'm not marrying her because of those three things. She lives in Canada, she's a charismatic, and she has three boys. I'm not ready for any of that. And uh, so... It was really bad, apparently. Hey, it was two two months after Andrea died. Cut me a break. So anyhow... (laughs) Any, so, like, really, here we, we have to go. It's 20 after. Oh, no, you're good. Um, so, you know, a couple of weeks passed by, and I asked her the question. I felt like a sixth grader. Have you ever thought about the two of us? I seriously, dry mouth, sweaty hands. I did feel like I was in sixth grade again. And you said? Well... Before that, I had had this conversation with the Lord. And I said, okay, God, with your help, the boys and I are doing well. You're being a father to the fatherless and a husband to the husbandless. And I know I'll be single the rest of my life. And I just want you to know I'm okay with that. Kind of like I'm going to let God off the hook, right? 
And, um, and I just think he's probably just laughing at that point. And, um, but then I was driving the boys somewhere just before you called and asked me that question. And I had just been driving the boys and thinking, oh, Todd's alone and I'm alone. Who knows what God will do? But gone again. Like, I didn't dwell on it. But, but it was enough when he asked me, have you ever thought of the two of us? Well, <laughs> I had. So I did say yes. And then he said, if I had said no, he probably would never even called me again. That's but, true. Well, yes. I might have, but I would have never <laughs> asked that question again. So, yeah. So anyhow, a couple more weeks passed by, and I need to, I need to insert something here. When, Andrea and I, Wendy and I married May, 20, May 12th, 2001. And so if you do the quick math, I didn't wait very long. And so I really question after Andrea, way long after Andrea's death. And so I really question that over the years I have. And I, please hear me, I don't doubt God's plan for us. It clearly was his plan because here we are today. Um, I have one regret in that. But again, when you're talking about the sovereignty of God, you have to throw regrets, regrets out the window because he takes and he uses those for his children, for their good and for his glory. And so this is what he did. If, if, we, my heart says, my flesh says, I want to wait enough. We should have waited another year and just married. She went from Canada to Michigan, and I went from Chambersburg to Michigan right away. We skipped the year in Pennsylvania. But here's what would have been missed. Number one, number one, uh, the boys would not know my family like they do today, Mitreed and Josh. They wouldn't know the Hosetter family. Number two, and probably equal to number one is this. There was a couple that, that attended King Street that Wendy and I, after we were married, had a conversation one Wednesday night as we stood in the parking lot. They were a little older than us, and uh, she was a widow married, by, uh, married to this guy, and uh, we were talking about those types of issues, um, parenting, and she had three kids, yeah, and, uh, and this is the thing I remember the most was this. Um, she said, my kids will have nothing to do with me. And he said, and it's because of me. And here I am married to Wendy in a very similar situation. And it's because he was overbearing when he came in. I'm going to set this house in order. And if you know me, that's kind of the way I'm bent. Let's get things in order. And like I thought, things were not in order when they perfectly were. Wendy was doing a great job. So anyhow, if I think about, if I think about missing that year of my life, those two things would have been missed that were absolutely critical in the process. Um, so praise God for a sovereign plan. I have a picture of you too. Yeah, that's us. Look at that goatee. <laughs> that's Sound nice. to bring it back. It looks good. It actually it looks really good. And so this is, you guys get married. It's Hawaii, right? And then I have a picture of Todd with the three boys as well. Yeah. Yeah, the Lord took us to Hawaii, and we got married on Lanakai Beach, which is spectacular. It really was. Hmm. One of the things that we are trying to show with this part two of the story is it's kind of building up. It's kind of like tragedy, and now like all things are getting well, right? And are we heading down that road right now? Yes, we can do that. Yeah, but just before that, I have to say, I remember um, when we, I always said, when Todd and I were talking about thinking about talking 
about dating because it was like I could not imagine life without Dave still. Like, it's crazy. And then to think about dating and changing our life and all of that. And um, I remember close friends of ours, of Dave and I's, coming to me and saying, how can you be processing this? Like, you and Dave had something really special. How can you think about marrying somebody else? Now, this is when we've decided now. We've gone through the thinking and processing. We've decided we're going to get married. And they came and said, how can you do that? And I said, I'm so thankful God gave me this too. Because I said, I know you don't have any other gauge than a breakup or a divorce to say to have another husband or to move on from. And I said, and that's usually messy. I said, but this is not like that. This is more like God's showing me this picture of when I was pregnant with Reed, my second And I thought, I remember the panic. Like, I'll never be able to love another one as much as I love Mitchell. And I love him so much, and it's going to take away from my love for him to love another baby. How is this going to happen? And then when your second is born and you think, I will never love anyone more than this one, and it takes nothing away from your first love of your first child. And it's like that. It's like, God, I had one heart that was all Dave, forever will only be all Dave. And it's like God just grew a whole new heart that was all Todd, forever be all Todd. It's that. It's not like a divorce or a breakup feeling. That's helpful. So I needed to say that, yeah, because I thought even after giving my testimony the last time and talking about Dave and now, you know, we have this that God has blessed us with, that's wow, how you can handle it and how it's different. Yeah. And so you all are like, how could you not want to marry her. And and let's go back to the, let's go back to the absolutely not. She is not even like in the realm of possibility for what I'm thinking. And I was, and I said this to the God, I said, God, if you want me to be with her, almost with this tone, if you want me to be with her, you're going to have to do a crazy work in my heart because I'm not doing it. And I, I like, and then the moment I saw her the, for the first time where she's single and I'm single, she was not Dave's. I was not Andrea's. I'm sitting in the airport, in the Toronto airport, and here she comes. And this is the moment where I just see God rolling back and laughter just roaring through the heavens because he's like, I don't even, I've already set the plan in place. You're not going to have to do anything except open your eyes and see. (laughs) And he was right. And uh, that's when it began. And we did have some hard stuff to work through, but, but God did clearly bring us together for some Pretty awesome life together. So you guys moved to Grand Haven. Yeah. Right? When did when when did you guys start coming here in that process? Where was that at on the like two thousand six, two thousand seven okay. time frame? We lived a year in Pennsylvania. Okay. And then um God brought us here and Yeah. We awesome. searched for a church for about a year and then a couple years before yeah. we got here. Yeah. Yeah. And in the process something wonderful happened. There's a new life brought oh, yeah. into the world, Caden. Yeah, yeah. Where is he? Yeah, Caden's born. I have a picture here with Caden with the brothers. He's the curly-haired one in the middle. He's a really <laughs> tall baby. I'm just kidding. Uh, and then another one here when he's a little bit older with the brothers as well. What yeah. a great pig. Yeah. yeah. That's them. Fast forward a couple of years, though, with Caden... And with your marriage comes new trials, mm-hmm. right? So 
we have here in 2000. So, so I'm going to let you guys introduce some of the trials, right? So you step away from this one, you kind of step into some new ones and share a little bit about that. Well, let's just start with this. The, the, the conversation we had with that couple standing in the parking lot, I heard, but didn't take to heart. And of course, that was me coming in. We're going we're gonna to establish order, whatever that looks like, who cares at this point. But it was me coming in and, and deciding that I need to be the husband and father that's not been. And so that created, not been, having been a dad before, that created some pretty significant marital complications. Because my van was a mess, because I was a mother of three and driving by myself and just throwing snacks back to keep them happy as I'm driving. Yep. And he has the spiritual gift of car cleaning. And he came. <laughs> it's real. He came as like trying to sell my van. He's like, I can't believe the disaster this van is. You would have been amazed too if you would have seen it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so that. Blended family, second marriage is just hard. It's just hard. And I had my, and coming into any marriage, you come in with huge expectations, which I wish we didn't, um, but huge expectations that I just dumped on him. Like, you're now going to be the hero and save us. And um, without saying that, I think, but expecting it and him not doing it my way. And um, I got pretty uptight about that and kind of protecting my three grieving little boys and um, that's where the mother bear came out in what would maybe normally be a little more meek person. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just lost my train of thought as it relates to that. Keep going. Or now you lost yours. Where were we? Myself crying myself to sleep seriously like every night in our first couple years, our first year for sure. And man, me being oblivious, having no idea this is going on. Really didn't know. Yeah. So I decided if he loved me, he would see that, my needs. He would see what he's doing and how he's shutting me down from being able to share with him where I'm feeling like I'm missing it in in our marriage where we're not clicking the way we should. And um, so I decided if that maybe he doesn't even know how to love me. And yeah, yeah. and then took on a lot of um, probably would resentment. Yeah. Yeah, that came in with him not doing it my way. And in the midst of that, Caden's born. And then you find out in 2006 that Caden has diabetes, right? So you guys are trying to adjust to this new life. You both have your experience of marriages before that you both told me was like, for, for both of you and those felt easy. But then you come together after this grief. There's three kids involved and there was some hardship there. There's trials along with it. Caden's mm-hmm. born and then you have the uh, trial of Caden being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. And that is a very significant thing for you guys. It effect, affects you guys still today. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. A whole new kind of grief that, again, you're dealing with. Yeah. yeah. However, it turned out to be a unifier. I would say that was a, that was a game changer because we, our, our focus turned to another battle. And yeah. so that was helpful. Yeah. Although there were lots of times where I would find him, like I remember one time you sitting on the front porch and you were just crying. And I, instead of, you know, being 
compassionate. I was like, just get it together. Like in my mind, it was, you just need to get it together. This kid in here needs us to have this together and get it figured out. And so there was definitely times where it was pulling us apart. Um, we had to choose. Yeah. To it's really to go to God with it together, mm-hmm. which we hadn't done a lot of before. Yeah. So the, the, uh, the hero on the back of the white horse did not come charging in, as Disney would say it does, at least in our situation, didn't. And there were significant battles that existed between us for probably seven, eight years, we determined the other day. And uh, so when the, when the elders asked me to start doing biblical counseling, um, facing others that were dealing with marital issues, it was a scary prospect, but this is what happened. This is where the turning point happened for me. I sat with a couple. This is years and years and years ago. I sat with a couple right across the table from me, the six-foot-five, very angry man. And the wife was very quiet because, she, because her husband was angry. And the Lord was punching me in the forehead over and over and over again. He said, that is what walks in the door every time you come home. That's what your wife experiences. That one threw me to my knees in humility and said, Lord, I please forgive me. And that's when I began to hear the things that she was saying to me. Yeah, and at the same time, I was reading like every book I could get my hands on how to fix this marriage. And um, I read one that said, I remember sitting in my chair at home reading this and it said um, that my God is requiring of me to respect my husband. And I was like, okay, yeah, but Lord, you know my husband. And yeah, like, like what that will do to our family if I just completely like roll over or whatever and be a doormat is what it felt like. And God very clearly said, daughter, I am not asking you to respect your husband because he deserves it. I'm ask- he didn't. I'm asking you to respect your husband because I'm your God. And that's what I'm asking. Hmm. And I remember this inner battle like, okay. But for you, Lord, I will do anything. So, but it was so hard. I remember standing up out of that chair and literally the effort it took to put one foot in front of the other. And I thought, I know I need to seek his forgiveness for disrespect and I know I need to do that in front of my boys because I disrespected them, him in front of them and so thankful that he gave me the strength and the ability to do that and he was of course so gracious and forgiving and then was like a, I remember like a couple weeks I everything felt different yeah and I said to him you have really changed And he said, I haven't changed. You've really changed. And we just really knew then that God was the one doing this Mm -hmm. um, when we finally surrendered to do it his way. Yeah. Yeah, I know you guys talked about 2009 seems to be the year for you where you felt like, and I see it when you guys describe like your marriage before then. I'm like, it's Todd and Wendy. You guys are like, you know, (laughs) awesome. Like, but it. That's the, that's the picture we're trying to show through this is the real life and real faith, real trials, and they don't stop 
once one's done. Life is full of them. And the hope that we're hoping is seen through it is that when Jesus says, in this life you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world, that with Jesus, God is trying to give us a heart that will endure things while we're trying to tell him to change things. Mm -hmm. He says, no. He says, but I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to do a work in you that's going to go through this and grow in it all. Right? Mm -hmm. So I know we're getting close to the end, so... I'm going to let you guys take over and conclude how you want to. I know we have, uh, you guys have some special things. It's things you want to share and some people you want to introduce. Yeah. So go ahead. For real, for real, Wendy and I hardly ever fight, ever. And I really believe it goes back to those two moments we each had with the Lord on separate occasions that began, Todd, you need to fix yourself, and God, with Wendy, Wendy, you need to fix yourself and stop trying to and that was the beginning. But out of it has come, um, this isn't just our testimony, so we have, a, we have a video that comes from Canada. Mitch and Laura are going to share their hope process as they come out of this. And uh, I don't, yeah, there they are. That's them. And trials, come on, freaking open the border. Because <laughs> that little guy right there, I still haven't met him and he's walking now. And so, like, trials are, they're always around. And yeah. we're, so we're ready to see them again, but they have something to say to us. Hi, my name is Mitch. And I'm Laura. I'm the eldest son of Wendy and live in Canada with my wife and three children. So, I will go first. Um, so, Todd had asked if we could b- briefly speak about where our hope is as we consider the loss of Mitch's dad. Um, I only came to know Mitch later on. We met when we were 18 years old, so... In the nearly 14 years we've been together, although I never witnessed or experienced the trauma of what happened in Mitch's dad's death, one thing that has really struck me is the encounters that we have had with people over the years. Mitch's dad's death really sent a shockwave through our region. My um, Any person that was old enough to have a memory of his passing uh, has a story of their own of how that event affected them and the sorrow that it brought to them. When we meet people and Mitch tells them who his dad was, you can see in their eyes and in their faces that they are trying to make sense of the grief that they had over that event. And they are also trying to make sense of how it connects to the man that they are standing in front of when they're speaking to Mitch. Um, I can see the healing from sorrow that God has brought to Mitch and his family, and then I get to witness the way that that same grace and goodness is bringing healing to so many people. When they speak to Mitch and they see the testimony of how good, how much good God has brought into his life, it's like you can see the healing coming to their faces as well as they're talking to him. We always leave these conversations and these stories um, with these people, and you see them walking away feeling lighter and changed by Mitch's testimony. Uh, That gives me hope that no matter what story you are living through, there is no limit to how God can reach others through your daily decision to be faithful to him through the good and through the bad. Yeah, so losing my father was a bad situation. God did not change that or make it a good situation. What God did do was bring good into many lives out of that situation. So the people in my life are different than they would have been if my father hadn't died. My stepdad, Todd, and half-brother, Caden, as well as gaining the entire extended Hostetter family, has been a joy 
and a blessing in my life that I absolutely cherish. Todd, as I started calling him Daddy, in particular has been a solid example of godliness that I strive to model in my own life and has and will continue to greatly shape my faith. I would not have ended up at the university I did and would not have met my wife or had my three children who all point me to Jesus in their own way. This family is a major faith shaper and each one of them is a gift straight from God's grace that came out of a terrible thing. Uh, the relationships with my brothers, mother, and three closest friends in particular that I had before my dad's death um, are now deeper and stronger and more true and real than they would have been. Uh, these relationships have helped to shape my faith and encourage me in Christ without a doubt. Um, also, uh, my relationship with Jesus Christ has been made firm. The Lord proved to me that he is the cornerstone. Um, all else may move and break and shake and tear, but through it all, he will not waver or move or change. And he is there for my good and for his glory. Even when I was in the middle of grief and I couldn't see God's hand at work in my life, his grace was poured out over me and my family. As the years go on, I can look back and see his hand at work more clearly and how it has shaped and guided me to this day. So now, 23 years later, after my dad's death, I can see new grace and new mercy coming into my life even now. So the end of the matter is that God is good. He loves me and you no matter what you've been going through or have gone through. He will prove that to you. Sometimes you just need to open your eyes and see it, and sometimes he'll open your eyes for you. Yeah. Reed and Sammy and family, come on up. We want you to see. We want you to see the hope in all of this story. Not, yeah. I suppose Josh, you and Kara can come Josh, up also, um, and Kaden. David and Caden, come on up. Two people had to perish for this to exist. And Reed and Sammy are going to talk now. Mother or father, Mitch is so proper. Um, Oh, quickly, so my mom was talking about throwing snacks into the back of the van. She also, there are many times, well, maybe there's one time in particular I remember that she also had a newspaper, a magazine, I think, maybe, that she rolled up, and her arms were too short to get at me. I was sitting behind her, so she rolled that thing up and was whacking at me with it. I said, we're not flies, Mom. Um, He said that. So... I wrote a couple of notes, but I'm going to keep it really short. Um, and usually I'm, I'm a pretty logical person, emotions removed. Um, it's really only Disney movies, I think, that get me, because for some reason the dad always dies. Mm. And um, watching the two of these people cry. So uh, anyway, I'll try to keep it together. But um, Todd talked about him not being ready um, 
ready to handle that, which I'm assuming was, he meant kind of us and our situation and three boys. But specifically, I think he was probably talking about me more than anything else. Um, it's, it's telling that 2009 was the turning point. That's when I graduated high school. Uh, so I don't read into that what you will, but, um, <laughs> um, but seriously, I, I kind of got stuck in that, that second stage of grief that my mom talked about, um, anger. And I mean, I was seven. I didn't really know what was going on. I was super confused and, and that confusion became anger for me. Um, I had a life pretty much defined by that um, for a lot of years and took a lot out of it on, uh, on Todd um, when he came into the picture. But I, I don't know. It, it's amazing to me how... God, through that time, when I was angry at him, angry about situations, had a short fuse, um, he just patiently walked alongside me and continued to show me his goodness through it, even as I rebelled. Um, He showed it to me through the love of my brothers. Um, He showed it to me through the sanctification of Todd and through the redemption of our relationship together. Um, I, I have, I'm a very, like I said before, logical person. I need facts. Um, I need figures. I need to ask why. Um, and so I am a person that has a propensity to doubt things. But as I stand in front of you now and go through trials today, there's one thing because of this experience, which was, like Mitch said, not good, right? I would not, I would not want my father to die or any of you to, to experience trial, but um, I, I have this confidence. I know based on the evidence in my life and the evidence in the, in the scriptures that God is good. Even if I don't think he is in the moment, just ignore him. He'll get, he'll get worse if you laugh at him. Um, I, I don't question that. And it's my nature to do that. And so that's a, a, major, a major gift of God. Um, I read uh, an A.W. Tozer excerpt about the fallow field. I don't know if you've read that before, but um, it talks about this field that's doing okay. It's on its own. doesn't have to, to be plowed. Um, doesn't get planted. It's, it's living the easy life. And many people think that that's what that's what we need, right? Or that's what we desire. But, um, but then it contra- he contrasts that with, with the plowed field, the farm field that is, that is ripped apart and worked hard and suffers. And at the end, A.W. Tozer talks about how nature's wonders, the fruit of that field, that farmed field, um, that nature's wonders follow the plow. And... Um, 
I can say that that is very true in my life. Um, I, yeah, I look around at all that that God has has blessed me with. These two and Sammy. Um, Sammy's from West Michigan. I wouldn't have known her um, otherwise, and wouldn't have had Oakland and Lila. And so again, more pieces of evidence that. I just don't, I don't question that God is real and with me. And you need to know before I pass the mic, and thanks for your patience. Oh, you have one. But uh, Sammy's family is currently and has just learned a couple of weeks ago, or starting very recently, that her mom is in a fight for her life with cancer. And uh, so trials keep coming, don't they? So let's pray. Let's, let's remember to be praying for her, okay? Yeah, much like unread, or much unlike read, I tend to be a lot more highly emotional. <laughs> um, so I think, like through the course of growing up and grieving uh, my father not being around, I think um, it just was a highly emotional journey for me, and um, I don't know, grieved. Yeah, like my mom said, throughout life in different points of my life. I remember in high school, it was really, really hard time wrapping my head around the fact that like, I have a father here who isn't my true father, but is my true father in that I don't really know anything else. Um, but like, yeah, God giving me the clarity of mind through some like really hard emotional things to like be able to see that yes, I don't have a blood father anymore. He's passed, but like this man that God has given me is like so worthy to be looked up to, and um, such a great example of um, who a man of Christ should should be. And um, yeah, I think the grief that we as a family went through, I think, like really drew us together and um, brought like a crazy amount of togetherness that I think we wouldn't have otherwise um, having not had to grieve through all of that together and um, again like both Mitch and Reed talked about our half brother that we wouldn't have and our wives that we would never have met and our children that we like wouldn't have otherwise like taking a step back years later and looking at the sovereignty of God, like bringing it all together. Like again, like Reed said, Sammy was from West Michigan. Kara is also from West Michigan. Like if they never would have got together, like if their previous spouses never would have died, we never would have ended up in West Michigan and met the people that we've met. And yeah, the, yeah, the church that we have, the church family we have and think of, some of my closest friends, like the relationships that I've built and things that even we've walked through that together that we never would have. And yeah, the impact that the ripples and ripples and ripples of impact that just those two lives not being here anymore have had is amazing to see. Yeah, so... I'm obviously the uh, the half brother, um, and so like when I think about the situation, uh, 
my youngest brother is eight years older than me, and um, I always kind of like relate to what Laura said, um, kind of in the aspect like the wives came in after all of this happened, and that's that's kind of like I came in after all this happened, but also it was like it was my childhood. I grew up with them, and something as simple as what happened put a, such a distance between um, my oldest brother being 15 years older than me and my youngest brother being eight years older than me. And to think by the time I could kind of, like I was old enough to use my brain in more of like a mature way and actually think through and process things. Um, well, eventually, especially I got to the point where I had my father to look up to um, especially through all the spiritual things. And then I had three older brothers also to look up to. So I had, I had a family that was any, to a certain point, any, any person I went to in my immediate family, I had such a great source of wisdom and um, something to look up to. And I got to grow up um, I was never there to witness it, but like um, I see it impacting, and it still is impacting. Like even today, I was hearing things that I didn't know before, and um, it's just such a interesting thing to see how the Lord works, and then to be able to grow up with three sources originally, um, and then four sources, and then the wives came in, and then. Um, it's just the wives and then it was such an amazing thing and I mean by the time I was 16 I don't know I don't know how old I was I had three sisters when did you come when I was 16 it's an amazing thing thanks for your patience it's like this feels skinny down even still Psalm 40 comes from King David second king of Israel man after God's own heart struggling through his own life's battles, he said this. So as you consider the trials that come into your life, this was presented to me like halfway through Andrea's coma. King David says, I waited patiently on the Lord and he turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. And as a result, many will see and fear and put their trust in you. Patience is absolutely critical, King David says. Patience is absolutely critical. Crying out to the Lord in your deepest times of despair is absolutely critical. The mud and mire moments of life are going to come. They just are. You cannot escape them. They will come. He promises that he will dive into the mess, the mud and mire, God will. He will lift you out of that and he will establish you on a firm place. And that firm place, as you're there, you'll be able to make sense of the mud and mire moments of life. Don't even try while you're in the mud mire. Wait till you're established after the fact. Just rest in the arms of our saving God. As you are established on that rock, he's going to give you a new song as you come through all of this. And many are going to see in fear. And you're going to have answers for them, for others as they walk through their times of grief. And God's really given me um, 1 Peter 5. And he just says... Stand firm. I'll just leave it here. Stand firm 
in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering is being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now to him who is able to do far more exceedingly than all we can imagine, be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think it would be appropriate to pray together. God, Heavenly Father, you are so good. Thank you for Todd and Wendy and for being brave and courageous to share their story, even though it brings and sparks memories of pain and tears. But God, thank you for the full story where we see what letting patience have its perfect work does. It brings us to a place later in life where we would look back and we wouldn't change the way things are, even as hard as they are. But Father, I know there's still people who are going through and wrestling through life in pointlessness and uselessness without purpose, without this hope. And God, we want more so than anything for them to see it. So through Todd and Wendy and their story, would you shine out through through this church today, through those who are listening, impress upon their heart their need for Jesus. Help them to see that you're with them and everything that you're trying to do in their life is good. Though hard, it is good. Father, help us today work in the way that only you can. And we give you the praise and honor and glory through your son, Jesus Christ.